Shall I introduce James? I mean, ahead, yeah. I'm sort of sure many people know him, but um, yeah, I mean, I know that his courses, uh, more than his courses, his website, Kinetic Revolution, is incredibly popular, incredibly popular with podiatrists and patients alike. And um, uh, yeah, it's our pleasure to have James Dunn with us, uh, JD, as I'm going to refer to him from this point. And um, we've known each other seven years. I was trying to work this out, six or seven years? I think probably is seven. Yeah, I reckon it's probably 2011, maybe. Yeah, seven years. Seven. Yeah. Yeah, so mate, thank you very much for inviting um, me on. Uh, it's great to... Yeah. Great to chat with you guys. Yeah, it's, we always want a topic in the world of podiatry that I think is, is more, more popular than it's ever been, gathering more, more momentum. And uh, I knew you'd say yes, because I knew that, um, I knew that you, you owed me a favour because I did one of these for you before once. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was an easy one for me to decide upon. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about, just to let people give people a bit of a, a bit of a feel for it, and obviously as we're going along, uh, do engage, do do um, do ask questions. But we're going to talk a bit about the, the running coach podiatrist relationship uh, that, that James and I have, and that we think is is valuable, and, and why why it's probably good for everyone to have that kind of relationship with with someone. Uh, and then get into the nitty gritty, really, when it comes to changing the way people run. Uh, what can we change? What should we look for? What what should we possibly change? When should we change it? Um, because it isn't a uh, indiscriminate um, thing to do. And of course, then the how we change it, the clinical sort of tips. And as we go along, if any questions come in, we'll uh, we'll sort of uh, Craig will give us the nod and we'll bat them away as well. Um, let's see how we're going. Steve Wells has just commented, uh, Craig saying, "No video, guys. Am I doing something wrong? Is it working as far as you're aware?" doesn't seem that anyone else has complained of that i've got it yeah i've got video Ian. okay good everything and craig you got video sorry everything will be fine i had my mute button on dogs are barking again <laughs> i wonder what was going on Is he... Uh, so we've got video, we've got audio. Okay, well, let's just, should we get cracking then? Yep. We've got 20 people online. So, yep. Super. So um, let's talk about our relationship, James, our, our professional relationship. Um, said we, we've known each other seven years. And when we, when, when we first met, uh, I'll be honest, uh, I was a bit uh, reticent to have a relationship with a running coach because my, my understanding at the time was they're just going to make everyone I send to them run the same way. You know, they're just going to tell everyone to do this with their arms or this with their their cadence, this with their stride length. And and we met and we got on well and we shared some patience and it, it just couldn't have been further from the truth. I guess what I'd love to know from you is what was your first reticence or concern about possibly having a relationship with a podiatrist? What was your opinion of us? I'm glad you went there. I'm glad you went there because I was going to come back with exactly this. I ha- definitely had my uh, my reservations as well as much as you were thinking, oh, here we go. He's going to get all my client, all my patients doing X, Y, or Z in a cookie cutter kind of fashion. I thought, oh, all right, okay, here we go. Anyone I send this way is going to uh, potentially be treated with uh, again the same one size fits all. Let's uh, let's you know just stick them in a, a pair of authorities uh, and off we go. But it's been couldn't have been further from the truth. Uh, it's been really good getting to know you and uh, and getting to understand that you think a bit differently and, uh, and a bit more open-minded than perhaps I have, perhaps unfairly, given uh, the, the the profession. It's, uh, yeah, it's preconception. I don't know. But no, it's it's been very good to have that challenge and come out the better side for it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And our relationship works well. We've shared... I dread to think how many runners we've shared. I've sent people your way. You've sent people my way. Um, there, there may be people watching who don't have um, that sort of um, referral network with with a running coach. Sort of for the podiatrist watching, why do why do you think we need a running coach? Do you, do you think we need a running coach in our sort of MDT? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's. I'll be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on this, but from my point of view. If I were to sit in your shoes um, and think about the kind of the ongoing care of a, a runner who comes to you, um, let's say with plantar fasciitis, for example, um, obviously you've got your um, treatment plan in place and the various different interventions you can put in place. But what happens then when they get back into their running? What happens when they then start back on their 
return to running program and then you know into perhaps training for a half marathon or a marathon um it's it's one thing being able to obviously affect their symptoms in in the short term and um you know send you know set them on the right path rehab wise but we all know that there are different types of patient when it comes to compliance as much as anything else um so on one hand you could be speaking to a runner who you give all the right advice and you can send them in the direction of here's a here's a here's a link which will give you a decent example of a return to running program but you know that that's what you need to do and they'll do it and they'll be fine but on the other hand you may have someone who is going to be a complete nightmare and as soon as they walk out of your clinic they'll get going with whatever you've given them and all of a sudden throw a whole load of volume back at uh, you know back in into their running and you know if they're used to running 50 miles a week backing off to them might be running 30 miles a week and they need someone like perhaps myself in their ear to say why don't we get a little bit more progressive with this why don't we actually build you up gradually with this understanding what ian's done understanding what craig's done understanding what we need to do from a rehab perspective, how we can integrate the rehab side, because I'm, I'm not just a running coach, I'm a sports rehab therapist as well. So that kind of from an exercise therapy point of view sits really well hand in hand. Um, and how, how can we start to, again, build the, build the resilience in the right areas as well as managing the training load at the same time to build you back to where you need to be from a training perspective. Um, so from a, a podiatrist point of view, if you're happy doing that yourself, work away fantastic but i've got a feeling that there are plenty of podiatrists out there who are um very comfortable doing what they're doing but will put their hands up and say when it comes to actually managing runners day in day out um they probably do with a hand what would you say hmm. yeah I, I i i utterly agree with you i mean i i also believe that even if we you know have a good understanding of load management, a good understanding of return to run protocols about how to manipulate some of the things we're going to talk about. And I'd like to think I've got a reasonable uh, understanding of that. It still doesn't mean we have to do it. I mean, some people might want to, but I, I've, I've truly always believed that we, we, we approach things as a team and as a team, we all have an understanding of what we do and, and, but we still play to our strengths. Yeah. So, in the same way that if um, I think it, they need a sort of a, a load protocol for a, a tendinopathic Achilles, I'm not saying I can't do it, but I'd always refer on to our, our mutual colleague, a physiotherapist, Brad, for example. Um, so I always like to play to my strengths, have an understanding of what you do. It just helps me when I refer on to you. And I think patients, certainly London types that we tend to see, they, they respond to having a running coach that that term i have a running coach now they respond to that really well i don't know whether it's a psychological thing but uh, they they suddenly feel like they're they're perhaps a little bit more serious yeah i definitely think particularly for the, um, the real kind of type a guys that you're talking about i think that's very true um i also think from an accountability point of view we've got to look at what brought them to your front door in the first place Ian. we've got to understand that you know as much as as much as the biomechanical side, and obviously we're going to get right into this later on, as much as the biomechanical side is important, the biggest issue we see amongst runners is training load mismanagement um, and, and you know, creating overload yeah, in that yeah. respect. So what led them to the point where they found their point of failure? Um, do they need to actually have someone take their training program in hand so that they don't get back to that point? So forget, well, no, not forget, but let's not just talk about the reintroduction to running. Let's reverse engineer what, what went wrong. Um, and make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's that's a really important thing as well. So. Actually, just on that, James, I remember when I picked up uh, Peter Larson's book, Tread Lightly, which I assume you read, the, the chapter in there on injuries. And I think in the first paragraph of that chapter, he said something that I really rolled my eyes at. And he said the best way to prevent an injury was uh, don't run one day a week. And I thought, what? But the more I thought about it, it, it it's exactly what you said. It's, it's managing the load. It's giving the tissues a chance to recover. And I, and, and even though I reacted quite negatively initially, I've sort of come around to uh, really, and I think that's what's changed in, probably most in my, my, my understanding about running is, is it's the load management, it's managing the loads, it's the recovery is probably just as important, if not more important than the actual training. Definitely. Could, could not agree more. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, this this time of year for us up here in the northern hemisphere as we're in spring marathon season you know february march we're going to see lots of people who are unfortunately getting that getting that slightly off center in terms of not just the load management but the intensity and, and all sorts of different variables there are of course so it's just having someone on hands to be able to 
you know, give them that second pair of eyes. I'm my own worst, my worst client. Um, I'll put my hands up to that. Definitely. There's something very difficult about being objective with your own running when you're, you know, even when you're not a running coach, when you're, when you're a runner out there training for a marathon and you know what you want to do, you know what you're trying to do. Um, and you are torn between this plan, this plan, this plan, this plan, and you see what your friends are doing. Um, it's very hard to be objective. So having someone on hand to actually bounce ideas against um, and say, listen, why don't we, why don't we just back off here and give you an extra rest day here and uh, not get back into that angry Achilles state, then that will actually allow you to be consistent in your, in your training. And off air, a second ago, we were talking about, um, we were talking about performance versus rehab and the fact that we really wanted to, to focus on the, the sort of the rehab, the injury side of things rather than talk about performance. And that makes me really happy because I really, really shy away when it comes to the, the technique side of things, when it comes to the, the question of what can I do to run faster? Um, I don't want to necessarily straight away say, well, in fact, I don't really at all want to say, well, we can do X, Y, and Z, and straight away you're going to PB over 5K, 10K, half marathon, because it's all nonsense. The truth is you need to run more consistently. And the, the problem with running consistently for a lot of runners is that they're breaking down. That's what's stopping them from running consistently. So if we can get them to a place by managing volume, intensity, frequency, etc., of their running, managing their training plan, to a point where they're no longer breaking down, they can run consistently, that's where they get faster. It's as simple as that. And if you have that conversation with runners, then all of a sudden, hopefully, they start to get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, can we can we just go to a question? Uh, there's a really good one that's come in. I think now now is a perfect time to ask. It's from Dave James, up in Birmingham, and um, he sort of said, oh, you know, it seems logical. Uh, he actually spent the day with me in clinic on Friday down in London, and so he's uh, he sort of got a bit of a vibe for the way we do things in that sort of real team approach at Pure Sports Medicine. He said, having access to a running coach seems logical. James, what are we looking for in a running coach? especially for those of us outside of big cities. And I think it's a great point because I've always feel like I, I got lucky with you. Um, or maybe I didn't, maybe everyone's, you know, maybe, maybe you are the, the perfect standard, but I think a couple of things to say. The first is, you know, what should we, what, when we're looking for relationships with running coaches, what are the alarm bells? I guess one of them might be someone who's promising performance from the sound of what you just said. What are the other alarm bells for podiatrists looking for that relationship? What's, how do we spot a good and a bad one? So it's difficult. There are so many different, um, I guess, different ways of getting to the, the point where you're coaching runners. Um, you know, whether you're coming at it from the angle that I'm coming at it, where first and foremost, I'm a, as I said, sports rehab therapist who now works with runners solely, um, or whether you're someone who's gone down the UK athletics route um, and you know, perhaps they've done a, a run leader award or something like that. And then they built on that and built on that with coaching accreditations. And they've got no real background in terms of the, you know, understanding the, the injury side, which from my point of view, when you are dealing with runners and knowing that the biggest risk to a runner is injury, um, you know, far more than it is um, getting your nutrition wrong on race day or something like that. So, you know, the biggest, the biggest challenge is getting to the start line, line in one piece Ideally, we, we want someone who is, um, has at least some sort of background in terms of sports rehab, sports therapy, in terms of physio, um, you know, someone who's got some sort of background there. Um, obviously, that, that's going to limit the pool quite a lot. What I would, if we looked at it the other way around, what I'd back away from potentially is someone who specifically aligns themselves with... Um, Oh, this, is, this is difficult because actually I'm going to disagree with myself. I'm going to say it first. Um, someone who aligns themselves straight away with a brand name. So someone who says, I'm a pose coach or I'm a chi running coach or I'm a uh, Vivo barefoot um, coach or, or something like that. That for me straight away is red flag, red flag, red flag. Problem is, I'm really happy saying that. I'm fine saying that. But I also have a very good friend, the guy called Greg Kors who is in London, um, he's in North London, probably not a million miles away from a bunch of your, bunch of your guys, Ian, but he actually changed my mind a little bit um, about chi running because I was very much of the opinion that it's one size fits all, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he's the guy who's now in charge of um, coach development amongst, uh, or basically certification in, in UK, Ireland, and maybe Europe now for those guys. Um, but he actually said some really, I, I hope he wasn't just telling me what I wanted to hear, but 
you know, said some really smart things in terms of um, being far from cookie cutter and you know, looking at athletes from a, a more holistic, let's say, point of view without getting into it. Um, so that, that, I guess, for me was um, a moment where I was challenged around my preconceptions about cheer running. But in general, he, I would, he, in my mind, I'd still position as the exception, not the rule. You know, he's the guy who is trying to push that organization forwards on this side of the Atlantic. But there are going to be plenty, plenty, plenty of coaches out there who are just going to take a textbook approach based on what they've been taught on a, on a weekend course um, and apply the same thing to everybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'd probably stand by my first statement. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the situation in Australia is they have, I, I assume it's very familiar, similar to the UK where there is quite a formal um, coaching pathway with various stages they have to go through. And then on the other side of the coin, we have what you were talking about, the red flag coaches. And I, I think there, there are two groups. And at the end of the day, unless you're familiar with that structure, um, especially around Athletics Australia, you, you don't know that there are these people who have had to go through quite a f- rigorous process and mentoring, um, covering a whole lot of topics from nutritionists to psychology to, well, you know, and then, as you said, we have those that do the weekend course on how to be a, a, a coach of a particular cult is what I'll call it. So, yeah, it's... <laughs> yeah, and what, what, I'd say, what I'd say around that as well um, is, again, whether you're, whether you're looking for someone who, again, has been through a very certification process with your national governing body or whether it's someone who is um, a personal trainer who has found his way into working with lots of runners, there is another approach. Um, we're talking to Dave, aren't we? So another approach, Dave. Um, taking someone under your wing. Um, if you've got a... If you've got a running coach in mind um, and you, you're thinking that logistically it makes sense for you guys to work together, logistically it makes sense for you to have a relationship um, professionally to, you know, to, to co-manage runners, um, there's going to be lots that you can probably learn from hopefully an experienced running coach from a coaching perspective and a managing um, training load perspective, but there's going to be lots that that coach can learn from you in terms of understanding when to refer on understanding their limits around those conversations they have trackside um you know when do you say well perhaps you should try and stretch your cars a little bit more versus okay we need to get you off to see dave we need to get you off to see ian we need to get you off to see craig um you know that kind of informal structure that kind of informal mentoring is going to benefit everybody but mostly most importantly the runners that you're both looking after um, I think, Ian, that's something that through the last seven years of yourself, particularly Brad, I think I've had more contact with Brad than I have you just because of the course and uh, all that sort of thing. Um, I, I've definitely had that from, from Brad and I, I, I hope to think he's had the same from me. Um, the fact that we just talk about stuff and mm. you know, he, he has dragged me on kicking and screaming and hopefully I've done the same to him. Yeah, we just had another question. Yeah, I and I think... Um... Oh. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, we just had a question come in, James, from Kylie Williams. Now, oh, Kylie was one of our he, previous guests on this, um, and she's just asked this question about when do our serious teenagers need to consider a running coach, and what do we do to make sure that the coach understands the growing body? Now, Kylie's background is she teaches a lot of, treats a lot of pediatric patients, but she's also got two teenagers, so she might be asking about her own kids here. I don't know. <laughs> Um, again, first and foremost, I don't really do much with kids. Um, I haven't since my last paid employment elsewhere, which was, I suppose, what, 2009, 2010, where I was working with academy footballers and we saw lots of, lots of severs, um, severs in particular, actually, rather than, um, much else, but it, um, from a, from a developmental point of view. Um, but I think one thing that really stands out from a, again an adolescent point of view is the coordination side of things and I know we want to talk about a little bit a bit, little bit about drills later on if we get into that maybe we will maybe we won't um, but something that I found really interesting working with those youngsters especially season, seeing them from a, a footballer perspective season in season out and often seeing them pre-season um, is that year in year out you'd be presented with a very different child by the same name um, one year to another, all of a sudden there's been a massive growth spurt and, and coordination-wise they go out the window and uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of sort of retraining to be, to be done from a, 
effort work perspective and we're moving away from running now but but you know from a perspective in that respect so it's certainly something to to take into account but from an injury perspective again i think it's just the same as everybody else it's about listening to your body um and knowing that you know, there will be there will be aches and pains and knowing that there are various different um again various different very specific um adolescent type issues like i said that we need to we need to look at and we need to keep an eye out for um but the problem a lot of time i've found with kids in the past is that they're not brilliant at um at what's the word uh articulating quite what they're feeling and where they're feeling it so actually giving you know, actually listening to them and, and trying to spot the signs of, of when they need to back off rather than allowing them to feel like a bullet to gate which if i if me is anything to go by at that age um i was uh, the most active kid it's uh, you know getting the tent put off the gas is is important yeah, that's been in my experience with kids is, is you, you can do everything right but they'll still sprint around the playground at lunchtime and stuff like that sort of <laughs> no matter how much you plead with them they, they don't tend to listen too well to the, yeah i think uh i think i think the summary for me and it kind of brings together Dave's question and Kylie's question is, is the things I would, that would, I would be fearful of in a coach. Firstly, if it was a, a coach, someone who was coaching kids would be uh, when I asked them about what they were being asked to do, it was clear that they were just being beasted. You know, that classic coach that just beasts, beast kids. Uh, that, that for me is a, is a, is a big warning um, more than anything else. And kind of coming back to what Dave said, my, my, my concern when I met you, which was quickly uh, kind of quashed, of course, was, was anyone that applies a, a blanket approach, a recipe book, a cookbook approach. And like we said, that works both ways. So just the same way that we should be uh, mindful that a podiatrist that treats everyone the same way and just dishes out orthoses is, is probably uh, uh, not, not someone a relationship is going to go well with. It's for the same, same for me with coaches. It's just about being individual to the person in front of you. I must admit, I don't see many kids, uh, as you know, because of, of where I'm based in London. So I can't add much to Kylie's question. Um, I don't send kids off to to you because uh, I don't see them myself uh, particularly so how many kids do you see do you, you see none at all or what's the youngest you see you, who's on your books at the moment surely um, you must have a coach uh, uh, someone you've coached who's yeah I mean youngest, you must have someone youngest, you've coached you've loved youngest in the last few years sorry delay be, sorry. no that's right Long, youngest in the last few years 16 year old um, and they are very few and far between. Um, there have been a couple of 16-year-olds, but other than that, it's mostly your kind of um, mid-20s and upwards recreational runner and triathlete that I see. Um, but actually, mm. on the note you just kind of began to go into there, Ian, an important point that, um, that I wanted to add around, again, the kind of the beasting point of view, um, in, in a similar respect to that, is firstly... We don't necessarily, well, we don't want to see um, coaches who just coach kids like little adults, okay, because that's not going to work. We need to take into account the fact they are kids. I think sometimes you do just get, um, you know, again, some coaches who have found themselves in a position where they're teaching kids and they're just trying to apply the philosophy here to the fact that, yes, they're, they're younger and, and off we go. Um, but even more important, I think, is the whole conversation around specialism. Um, I... I've never really thought about putting a specific age on this this kind of conversation or that on my thoughts around this conversation. But if I had to be put on the spot now and put myself on the spot and think of an age, I'd say probably it wouldn't be until maybe university years that I'd really want to see someone specialise and say, yeah, I absolutely want to be a distance runner. I absolutely want to be a Y or Z. Um, I would want to see that you you're taking the approach as a coach of looking at a kid who might be extremely talented as a, I don't know, lacrosse player um, and saying, brilliant, very talented lacrosse player. Let's try and build him as a little athlete in the same way as we're trying to build the distance runner as a little athlete um, in the same way that we're trying to build a javelin thrower as a little athlete um, and then allow them, you know, so perhaps we're looking at a 16 year old now at this point then allow them as they kind of progress as they kind of progress age-wise as much as anything else to then make that decision for themselves as to where they want to uh, get really specific now of course that doesn't necessarily practic work super practically if we're talking about swimmers and things like that because you know the the volume that those kids have to do at a very young age is, is nuts but um i think as a general philosophy building little athletes 
who are just athletic and capable and are rounded as athletes um, is a is a really smart way to go um, rather than yeah rather than just going too specialized too soon um, what, what do you think about that no that that's actually well supported by the data I, I off the top of my head I can recall two studies mm. that showed the earlier sports specialization starts the greater the risk for injury so kids do better um, across multi-sports and you know as a parent that I'm following that philosophy I mean I my girls start high school next year we might start looking at getting a little bit more specialized then but you know trying to get as wide a variety in as possible you know gymnastics building that core up you know they'll choose later what they want to do so yeah but it's well supported by I mean, the I, I don't, yeah I don't have kids but I can fully see myself when the time comes being really supportive the whole idea of saying what about gymnastics club because I just think that gives such a solid grounding for anything else you want to do okay well, um yeah. yeah well the first yeah. ever sports medicine conference I went to was in 1981 and I remember I still remember a presentation by an orthopedic surgeon. Um, his name was Johnson. I can't remember his first name. And he said, he's talking about kids in sport. You know, we're talking 1981. He said, kids should do two things. They should run. They should do gymnastics. And his logic was that will then set them up for when they get a bit older to be ready to do whatever sport they want to choose to do. And, you know, and, that, and that's that, it's stuck in my mind since then, you know, that, 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 and that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Movement. Mm. Movement. That's the bottom line. Move. So, should we get stuck into some of the running technique stuff? Uh, yes. It seems it seems sensible to because uh, there may be some people listening who who I mean the, I'm sure that the audience of podiatrists listening all look at people move. They all do gait analyses um, of of varying descriptions. When it comes to looking at a runner, you know, rather than looking at things from through our podiatric lens as a running coach. The, the big things to look at, um, certainly the questions that came in beforehand were all around the step length and cadence and that relationship. So if we could touch on that, that first, that'd be great. Then step width. Uh, and then is there anything we should be looking at, even though we're the lower body guys, or uh, you know, is there anything we should be looking at upper body, arm swing, uh, posture, et cetera? So yeah, uh, take it away. Cool, fantastic. Okay, well, you set me up really nicely there, actually, Ian. So thank you for that. Um, when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to particularly describing what we're seeing for, from a start point, uh, in terms of thinking just you know from a two D perspective, two D gait analysis perspective, thinking sagittal plane, so thinking about stride length, thinking about where we're making initial contact versus centre of mass or versus um, flexing knee. Um, so obviously we will talk about the interplay between stride length um, in a relative term and cadence, but also from a stride width perspective, that lends us nicely to talk about um, the the more kind of indirect coaching. So where making manipulation to the the cadence of a runner is very much a di- what we call a direct coaching intervention. Um, so you're asking them to consciously do something different. If we ask a runner to run with a slightly wider stride width, which we'll get into in a second, um, using that as a, a direct coaching intervention, people will generally overcorrect. Um, and it'll be very hard for them to actually firstly make the, the subtlety of correction that we're after and make that stick. Um, and secondly, they'll, they'll potentially end up just giving themselves a problem elsewhere. Um, so what we do is we focus more on the indirect approach. So focusing on what we're going to be doing to strengthen the again abductors external rotators so again typically we're talking glutes etc etc as we so often do um but let's bring it back to the start point let's talk about stride length let's talk about cadence so when it comes to running a given steady pace boards there are two variables really that we're going to be talking about that are going to determine the pace you're running one of which is stride length the other which is stride frequency. So how far are you covering with each stride? How many times is that happening per minute? Stride frequency, call it what you want. Stride frequency, cadence, step rate, there are whatever terms, various different terms you could use. We'll go with cadence. Um, so if we're holding a steady, let's say, eight-minute mile, if I increase my cadence, if my pace is going to stay steady, so let's say I'm on a treadmill, if I increase my cadence, my stride length is going to shorten up. Those two variables balance themselves out. If I decrease my cadence, then my stride length is going to increase to maintain the same pace. Of course, when we're running over ground, pace is a variable as well, so it gets a little bit more interesting. But um, let's just assume pace is is locked in there. 
What we see a hell of a lot from runners is runners who are running with arguably for the given pace too slow of a cadence for that, that, that given speed they're running. So what they have to do as the cadence is too slow is essentially start to stride out beyond that that would potentially would theoretically be optimal beyond the point where they're landing underneath the flexing knee and start to land that foot typically with a heel strike but not always land that foot at that point of initial contact too far ahead of that more extended knee okay and that's going to increase potentially the amount of um, ground the, the amount of ground reaction force coming back at you but potentially really make uh, a big change in terms of the amount of load the telephenol joint is going to have to deal with and the hip's going to have to do it. Think of it as eccentric work around the knee and around the hip. And we're just going to talk sagittal plane right now, but be aware that, of course, we're talking three dimensions, three planes of motion. Um, so what we want to do in many cases is if we've got a runner coming in with patellofemoral pain, for example, and they are showing us that typical heel striking, not that the heel strike's the big issue, it's more so the where the foot's landing rather than how, but it is typically that heel striking, overstriding pattern where they're landing with that heel well in front of the, uh, well in front of the knee. And what we can do is, in that instance, when we're observing that, we can measure cadence and sometimes we'll see perhaps it's a runner running at a self-selected easy pace around about maybe 160 strides per minute. So 160 would be left and right combined. You could also of course, um, you know, reference that as 80, doesn't matter, it's up to you. Um, but take that runner and start to apply incremental increases in cadence. What we see a lot of people make the mistake of, especially once they perhaps read an article in Runner's World or, or online or somewhere, and they've seen 180 as being flagged up as this kind of ideal cadence for all runners to run at, um, is they'll take themselves, perhaps they are this... Jeff, who's running at 160 strides per minute at their, at their comfortable pace, um, and they'll simply set a metronome and they'll start trying to run to a, an artificially very much faster cadence, and it'll feel very, very staccato, for want of a better term, very choppy, very, um, very short, and almost like they're running, almost like it feels like they're running in place. Certainly not something they can sustain, certainly not something that feels comfortable and fluid. A lot of the time, that's where people get frustrated with it and, and end up bailing on that whole idea after a fairly short period of time. But instead, if we work on a principle of increasing by 5%, 10%, perhaps finding somewhere in the middle, 7.5%, um, then we could take Jeff, who's running 160 strides per minute, and take him to 168 strides per minute, which would be a 5% increase. And you know, there is evidence to support the fact that that will reduce the amount of, um, again, think of it very basically as eccentric load around the knee by just increasing by 5% at that same self-selected pace. And that in itself, again, can be enough in my experience for a lot of runners to start to, alongside all the other various different, um, uh, various different interventions we're going to be using from a telephenol pain point of view, be enough to help set them on their way as we get back into a return to run program. And with that return to run program, we're looking at, um, as we should be, a, a progressive walk-run program. The nature of, let's say, doing the first session of you know, eight to ten times, one-minute run, one-minute walk at an easy pace, what they can do for those one minutes, they can consciously be working on that metronome, beep, 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 to land on that 180 steps. And then when they're walking, they're walking. And then when they're back to that 100, the next minute, they're back to that, uh, sorry, not 180, 168 steps. Um, they're again back on the you know the cadence they're trying to dial in, and then over time we're increasing the run durations, reducing the walk durations, depending on how long the walk run program is, um, to get them to the point where we are increasing their their, their, their training load, increasing the amount of running they're doing. Um, so very basically, very broadly, and just talking about one variable there, which is generally not the way um, from a coaching point of view I go, but if we're looking at something that's really practical you can do in clinic, um, grabbing a metronome. Grabbing some baseline data at a given pace and saying, right, Jeff, with your patellofemoral pain, we can see that you're overstriding. We can see that your, um, your cadence is pretty low. We could actually quite easily dial that up a little bit, not by making big jumps, but by making incremental changes. You know, think 5%, 7.5%, 10%. 10%. That's that's certainly something that I know Brad has seen a lot of success with in clinic. Um, again, as I mentioned, from my point of view, I'm looking at a couple of different things at once when I'm, when I'm coaching. Usually, 
<laughs> again from from again talking about kind of development of a coach over time the big thing i've had to work on over the last 10 years is not over coaching not going here's 10 things to work on um it's more so say right we're going to dial this down to the the big rocks if you like and saying right okay we're going to start with cadence and factor on top of that posture because again we can talk about how the two affect one another um but just starting to help people become aware of their cadence find a comfortable yet increased point that's going to again from a, a tissue loading point of view makes sense that's where we can start to push people in the right direction ian is this something that you've had much of a chance to play with in clinic yeah yeah we brad and i play with it quite a lot um sometimes we have a little dabble before we send them to you and uh sometimes uh we don't depends how, how busy we are and things but i think the key thing to, to touch on here which i, I you know hopefully it's become clear already is we don't change we don't change the technique of people who aren't in pain uh, when i say we i mean myself brad i mean you as well in my experience and you know you touched on it there i asked you what should we be looking at to change and the first thing you talked about was cadence in the context of telephemoral pain and, and i'm very much the same in that and, and perhaps when we talk about some of the other changes will we'll bring in the more the, the sort of uh, pathologies that we know we have uh, context with there but we got really really good data that, uh, a massive amount of data that shows how patellofemoral joint forces change with different step lengths uh, and increasing cadence. And um, I think that's the key take home message here. We don't just change people's running because we don't like it or because it doesn't conform to some predetermined ideal. We're, we're changing it in the context of pain. And I think that's uh, perhaps that's something we didn't say at the start, but we should have, but um, it, hopefully it becomes clear to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's something that, um, Again, there's, for those interested, there's a podcast actually that I released a couple of episodes ago where I was interviewed by the incoming presenter on our podcast. Um, and we were talking about the ways in which I changed over time. Um, and to kind of paraphrase a little bit, you know, we were talking about the fact that you know, maybe 10 years ago when I, again, was working under someone else's roof and I was a little bit more green, let's say, um, I was definitely the guy who thought that you know, changing running technique would bring world peace. You know, it was, you know, it was the cure for everything. Um, you know, it was, and, and it's kind of awkward and embarrassing thinking back. That's but, all faces. They're all faces. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I say, it's kind of awkward and embarrassing thinking back, but it's, um, it, it's quite funny at the same time. Luckily, there are no horrendous horror stories as to where it all went wrong. Um, I think I was quite lucky in that respect. Now, as a more experienced coach, knowing that if someone comes to me saying, I want to PB over 5K, can you turn me into a four foot runner? Because I think that's going to be the answer. Um, I'm going to have a very serious conversation with them and just say, look, this probably, probably isn't where you want to be heading. This is, this is you know, only something that realistically I want to be guided by injury, at least injury history, if not something you're dealing with at the moment. Um, if not, I don't really want to touch your running technique. Um, I want more so to, if you are serious about this and you're okay with your running, you're not in pain at the moment, you're not injured at the moment, let's look at all the other variables. Um, Craig was talking about rest earlier. Um, you know, how's the quality of your rest and recovery, your sleep? What are you doing training plan wise? What are you doing strength conditioning wise? What are you doing from a nutrition standpoint? You know, there are so many different variables. How's your pacing? Um, it might not be your form. You might just be horrendous at pacing your park run on Saturday morning. Um, so there are so many conversations to be had before. Let's just uh, blindly play with your running form. It has to be guided by some sort of clinical reasoning. I suppose that's the best way of saying it. So let's move. Let's move on then. So if if someone present, yeah, you know, summary of that for me at least in my simple mind is if I've got a runner and they present with patellofemoral pain, amongst all the other things we do as well, one of the things I'll always try and look for is, or try and, try and capture in the clinic is what I think their, their cadence and their step, step length is. Let's move on to step width. Um, again, just throwing in a bit of the data, we've got pretty, pretty good published work that, that sort of um, suggests the context here would be medial tibial stress syndrome and or these sort of issues. Um, so, Talk to everyone a bit about step width and, and, and your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Yeah, definitely. So from a, a perspective, uh, from a retraining perspective, if we decided that step width is going to be 
relevant when it comes to dealing with someone who, again, whether it's TIB post-endonopathy, whether it's ITB syndrome. I've also um, had good results with people struggling with plantar fasciitis as well. Um, but again, that's, you know, I've got nothing to stand behind, to stand behind in that respect. That's just uh, very much you know, my experience. Um, the, the big thing, firstly, I want to look at, if I think someone is landing either very much kind of either on this tightrope or on opposite sides of our tightrope, is I wanted to take a quick look skeletally. Um, I want to see, are we dealing with a big, a big fat tibial varum, um, which might be setting them up to land in that position, or is it more so something which is coming as a result of poor proximal control higher up the chain? Um, more often than not, it's uh, more often than not, in my experience, again, is more to do with proximal control. Um, and that's where asking runners to do something different, asking runners to use those classic kind of uh, classic coaching cues, if you like, of you know trying to run on the double yellow lines or run what run one foot either side of the white line. For me, they don't work. Um, you'll hear runners who have got um, you know, success stories of saying that I tried this and it worked for me, as you will barefoot running, as you will all sorts of wacky things, um, but. For me, it's got to be more so looking at what's, what's not doing a great job to around particularly that kind of lumbro-pelvic hip region to provide the control and stability that we need, which is therefore allowing us to land in that more adaptive position. So again, that's where we turn to the rehab gym a little bit more than just asking them to do something different cognitively when they're running. So that's where we're making sure that we're getting them onto a solid again not just glute retraining um program there's actually a um and again i, I don't know what you guys think of them and, and again there was a period where i was consuming a reasonable amount of their content but not so much in recent recent years but there's a good video from the gate guys um where as much as the audio you have to strain to hear it they were talking about various different drills and cues to actually start um recruiting the again muscle like the obliques that little bit more when we're in a single leg stance to help again control hip and pelvis so various different drills you can use and cues you can use to again help runners improve proximal control on that single leg stance but it to again i suppose bring it back to you know, simple terms it's focusing more on non-running interventions than focusing on something which is very much consciously land with your feet further apart does that make sense here yeah so i mean what you're saying is rather than tell them how to change the way they run you sort of rehab it away from running and you find in your experience you find it, it carries over is that is that essentially what yeah, that's, that, that's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, if there's if there's some sort of strength deficit, strength endurance deficit, um, that when they get tired, and I noticed there's a question from uh, Emma Cowley in the comments. Um, do you analyze long distance runners and their fatigued state? Um, that's really important. Yeah, if there's some sort of strength endurance issue there, that when they get tired, they start to get a little bit poor, more poor from a control perspective around the hips. Um, then we need to do some work on actually building the resilience around there to actually get to a point where they're better at controlling that. Um, and yeah, that, that for me is far more, far, far more um, effective than just asking them to consciously do something different because we're asking them to do something consciously different. If genuinely they can kinematically make a change to how they're moving on this from a frontal plane, again, keeping it straightforward and simple, but a frontal plane point of view, um, then something's working harder to achieve that. They're having to consciously work harder and maybe we're going to, by consciously focusing on making them really, really focus on creating that wider stride width, are we maybe going to start overloading areas like glute mead? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. You know, I don't want to take them away from having a, a tip post problem and give them a glute mead tendinopathy. That's probably a bit extreme, but you, know, you understand the thinking there, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I think Craig Craig refers to this as it being a, a zero sum game, in that you know the, the forces in the system are always going to be be equal. So if you, by definition, if you successfully reduce load on one structure, great for that structure, but you you have definitely increased it somewhere else. And the question then becomes, where's it gone, and will that place tolerate it? So I think it's one of the things that we tend to, as I'm sure you do, counsel the runner on before we make these changes. We say, look. This is your pathology. This is the 
the thing that we're going to consider changing. This is the evidence that supports that and the rationale for doing so. But, but you know what, before we dive into it, here are the considerations, here are the possible trade-offs. And one of them is, will we give you, you know, niggles elsewhere? And the other one is often because they, they ask is, and we don't want to go too much down the performance road, but I certainly remember reading data that, the way that the way that we move from A to B is sort of a, a decision made by our central nervous system uh, based on the most metabolically efficient way to get there. And it's arrogant of any of us to assume if we tweak that, we're not probably going to uh, increase the metabolic cost in the short term, at least. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I certainly tell patients we might make something else hurt. We might actually make you less efficient to start with. We don't really have the data to know where it goes in the future. Um, but I just then make, let them make a, an informed decision as an adult if that's what they want to do. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And that, that sounds similar in different words to some of the ways I try and set up some of the, the conversations I have. So I try and quite early on explain that the way in which you run is very much kind of an expression of your body trying to move through the path of least resistance. Um, so you're played to your strengths in basic terms. So it's a combination of your various strengths, weaknesses, areas of I don't know, uh, restriction areas of really good range of motion, but poor stability, et cetera, et cetera. Strength endurance layered on top of that. If I try and consciously make you change the way you're moving in you know, anything more than a really subtle way, then we're starting to fight against that part of the least resistance. We're start, starting to try and fight against how the body has naturally chosen that it wants to move based on what it's got to work with. So simply asking it to make that change without any other input is likely not to be a game we're going to win um in the long term and again there's um you know a good study out there i can't remember i think it might have been pete larson actually looking at um marathon runners at the new hampshire marathon was it 2011 2010 um when they set up the, the cameras on the roadside around 10k and around 20 miles and we saw there were you know a lot of uh, a lot let's just very 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 simply say there were a lot more heel strikers when we got to the 20 mile mark um and it just goes to say that fatigue is a game changer and you can you can try and consciously change as much as you want but when we start to layer in fatigue the body's going to revert back to its path of least resistance so if we've decided that you're running posturally in a position where potentially you're ever so slightly kind of forward tilted through the pelvis and to this anterior tilt the pelvis so sitting as we colloquially talk to runners kind of sitting back in the run you know sitting back in the bucket if you like um and we're in a position where through being in that position where we're slightly forward tilted naturally going to be setting up to be slightly uh, again more likely to overstride unless we do something about the reasons why so perhaps those hip flexors aren't quite tight and that's what's stopping you from getting into this nice open hip position as we're getting into what we want real hip extension and internal rotation if you're not able to get into that position then asking you to do something different and fight against those tight flexes is not going to be a game you're going to win. So what I'd much rather do is say, this is where we're going technique wise. This is what we're going to try and change over time. These are some cues to think about, but these are the exercises that with a six, eight, 12 onwards week progression, we're going to get you to a point where your body's going to be more willing to move in a way that we'd like it to move as a runner. Um, and you know, some of them, this is what I mentioned about my uninjured runner. You know, some of them, are going to be your more um, generic kind of exercises that we want to see runners doing from a, a point of view of making sure that we can keep everything moving as we want to, so particularly around the hips. Um, and some of them are going to be really um, pathology-specific as well, depending on what we want to rehab, how we want to rehab it. So the exercises underpin the changes we're trying to make. I don't remember how I got into talking about this, so yeah, there you <laughs> well, go. Sure. Okay, James, we've, we've just lost Ian. He'll be back in a moment, I think. Um, what I'll do, much to me, if I'm actually a bit conscious of the time, but let's talk about perhaps the chronic exertional compartment syndrome, the anterior compartment yes, syndrome, where um, I, I, I see a lot of circumstantial evidence, a lot of reasonable clinical practice suggests that it might be related to the touchdown angle. So the, the more severe the touchdown angle, the harder the, the tibialis anterior is working, and that's predisposing to the compartment syndrome. So clinically, I've been doing this with extraordinary results but whenever i say my experience i think people should run away but we, we do have one really good uncontrolled study showed that, that transitioning them to four foot striking works really well but there was no control group so but i don't think they need to go to four foot striking i just think they need to reduce the touchdown angle if that means going to four foot striking it does so i just want a few comment on that but 
almost all like practically, how do you change that touchdown angle? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so let's deal with the first thing first. Yes, I agree. Totally. I, I probably exactly the same experience um, from a, well, from not exactly, but you know what I mean? The same experience as you in terms of seeing quite dramatic improvements from runners who are dealing with chronic exertional compartment syndrome um, by bringing them to more of a midfoot to forefoot position. Um, the big risk there, as with anyone making that change, is the fact that they're going to suddenly be, again, playing that zero-sum game and find that their calves, their whole plantar flexor unit, are going to be uh, experiencing something it's very much not used to. So the return to run program needs to be very gentle and uh, very progressive. And of course, the big challenge there is the fact that all of a sudden, because particularly with that pathology, we've made a real change for their symptoms, um, and they're like, wow i can i can run now and it's it's not painful i've seen a few people who literally have gone off the deep end and just gone and freestyled it completely and been so excited to be able to run that they've done themselves some uh, done themselves some damage from a, a plant flexor point of view so again being really really on it from a compliance point of view and giving them very strict parameters is important but i think the point you make uh, craig is is super important that it doesn't need to be black and white it doesn't need to be um, two ends of a spectrum, you know, two ends of a, um, yeah, two ends of a spectrum. It, there is plenty of difference between landing with this heavy, aggressive heel strike with a very aggressive uh, inclination. Kind of, as I talk to runners, I talk about kind of toes up to the sky as we're looking at to, as we're looking at them from side on. Big difference between that and loading with what I refer to as a proprioceptive heel strike, um, and that's again proprioceptive heel strike kissing heel strike whatever you want to call it the sort of heel strike where when i'm doing some 2d gait analysis with runners and we're looking at the we're reviewing the footage together looking from side on um they'll they'll turn to me and say i thought i thought i was four foot striking but i can see my heel striking first um typically we're seeing that they're making such a a light and fleeting contact with the rear foot visually to um with the ground um but really in terms of peak loading rates not having to work across the midfoot in comparison to these guys where peak loading rates can be coming up um yeah at that point of yeah the, the point of uh initial contact right up through the rear foot um it's getting to a point where if we can bring just to fast forward a little bit rather than just rambling on about that if we can get your runners who are suffering with um chronic exertional compartment syndrome who we're not looking to make that big change to a forefoot position, if we can bring them to a point where it's that gentle heel strike, not by asking them to suddenly either not land on your heels, which is a cue which will throw someone to the forefoot aggressively, they'll overcook it, or not giving them the cue of land on your toes, but instead give them the cue of trying to run tall, hold themselves that little bit more upright, bring their hips up and forward, then naturally bring the hips and pelvis up and forward over the top of that landing foot without consciously focusing on what that landing foot's doing, it'll allow them to actually get away from a position where they're perhaps landing so far in front of themselves because naturally they've brought their center of mass slightly forwards, um, which will, again, naturally find a point where they're slightly less aggressive with that angle of the, the sole of the foot to the ground. There's a nice graphic, actually, in the paper that it's the Heidescheidt paper I think um, from 2011 I think it was um, where they actually graphically represented the differing positions at what was it self-selected cadence versus plus five percent plus ten percent and if you look at the foot in that respect you can really see graphically quite nicely the the differing um uh, the different angle of inclination of the foot to the ground and if we think about the body as a whole unit and we think about if we were to just lock off the foot there if we can imagine that that's uh if we we're talking bike fit as an example if that's kind of you locked into the pedal if we brought you up and forward around the bottom bracket from a again from a bike fit point of view we're bringing the the pelvis up and forwards over the top of that foot then naturally you're going to go from being there to being there that little bit more so again coming forwards is the best way of thinking about it and just trying to hold your hips high is the best way of getting there. Do you see where I'm going with that? Because I used a very sketchy analogy there. Yep, no, no totally. Uh, again, I'm still conscious of the time. Perhaps the end, okay, something 
either you're in, you just. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I appear to be having some Wi-Fi issues. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. What did I miss? Did I miss anything good? <laughs> Enter a compartment. No. Yeah. Actually, James, just just following up one comment you made about the, the this uh, the four foot rear foot strike. Like we've we've been going almost an hour, and we haven't even touched on that, which tells you probably how important it is. Um, you know, to most people, gate retraining is all about forefoot striking versus rear foot striking, and the fact that we've hardly touched it, I think, it explains it. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you had contact with with Brian Martin down here in Australia, and one thing he said to me many, many years ago, and he, he's what I think is a very good running technique coach. He says, "I never never look at their foot strike; you just sort their proximal hips out and the foot takes care of itself and it falls where it falls and I think ever since then that's stuck in my mind is you know, not a major issue and I know Martin Shorten presented something quite funny at a conference recently where he, he showed data that the mean touchdown angle was 16.9 degrees dorsiflexed and but there's also a very nice bell-shaped curve around that like it wasn't a double hump curve of forefoot versus rear foot it was a, a continuum but when you look at the data closer Four-foot strikers were more than two standard deviations from the mean. And in medicine, if you're more than two standard deviations from the mean, you're in the abnormal category. And, and he, he, okay. was, he, not, he was trying to be funny, but like it was interesting. But it, but it was interesting that it was a perfect bell-shaped curve. So there wasn't four-foot versus rear foot. It was this very nice continuum. And that's, that's really interesting. So stuck in my mind. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. So, I mean, we wanted to we want to talk a little bit around um, upper body. Now, I'm very wary again that time time wise we're struggling, but I completely echo. Before we hopefully move on to that, I completely echo your, your point around um, around how we've managed to cover so much without even needing to go near the whole foot strike uh, issue, specifically fore foot rear foot. Um, the uh, again, great to hear you referencing Brian there. I haven't heard from Brian Martin in the longest no, time. Neither so, have I. <laughs> no, excellent. I hope he's doing. I hope he's doing all right. Um, the big thing that I wanted to quickly bring up with that is actually there's a chap over here in the UK who we were talking and it, and this was a few years ago and it really made my um, you know a few bells ring in my ear as if to say why haven't you thought of that before um, in terms of retraining particularly to get people away from overstriding um and you know whether they're four foot rear foot stri- striking with an overstride whatever but you know, getting them away from overstriding is actually to focus on starting to actually try and cue in a little bit more hip flexion um, and start to talk about why adding in a little bit more hip flexion as much as from a um from a um a point of view uh, contralateral um on the contralateral side, getting a little bit better hip extension out the back end from a, a cross extensor reflex point of view. That's what I was tripping over. Um, the what we're going to start to see is they actually start to get more of that ground co- coverage through the amount of knee uh, the hip flexion they're getting. So think from a running perspective, as we talk to our runners, knee drive rather than hip flexion, rather than having to swing that lower leg forwards um, and try and almost overreach for the ground when they're running with the given pace too little hip flexion. So something for you guys to mull over a little bit. I don't want to get into that too much. I'd much rather talk about the upper body. Yeah. Well, let's just touch on the, some of the, the, the upper body issues that perhaps we should be looking for or looking at that might be impacting on what, mm. what we're doing further down the chain. Totally. So from again, from my perspective, let's talk about how things have changed over the years for me just as the way in which my brain interprets things, the way in which I see things when looking at runners. So again, the old version of me would have very much looked at someone who is running with this typical swinging arm across the midline, so hand coming almost across the opposite shoulder, either fairly symmetrically or in an asymmetrical kind of fashion. Um, I'd look at that and say, well, perhaps that's something we can get more efficient, more efficient with and start to get you being slightly more linear in, in what you're trying to do and to stop using all this wasted energy that makes sense but actually as i've got more experience over time i've begun to understand that there's a reason there's a reason why that's happening and when we start to understand walking gait running gait that little bit better of course we understand the the rotation and counter rotation that goes on and the necessity for that from a just from a, you know, a, a point of view of the whole system not even breaking things down into into segments um and if we're starting to see at the top end, so we're looking at the, the upper body and torso showing 
lots of rotation, more than we deem normal perhaps, um, or an asymmetrical kind of rotation, we need to, rather than just say, that's something we could tidy up, in inverted commas, we need to think more so, what's that balancing out? What's that starting to try and create some sort of balance for? Um, again, a great, a great example of a runner who, despite all sorts of uh, interesting rotational issues, is clearly doing a lot very well, is Chris Gajetsu. Um, so if we, again, I'll be able to jump into the comments later and perhaps show you guys uh, a bit of running footage around, uh, around her for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. But she's an, an elite, elite Kenyan marathon runner who is you're running with this double arm mixing bowl action with this big, big knee valgus on both sides going on and this fairly horrible pelvic control. Um, but she's winning marathons, so fair enough. Um, but for a lot of us runners, if we are for a lot of us from a clinical point of view and a coaching point of view, if we're seeing a runner who is showing us that their hand is drifting off towards the midline or across the midline and they're rotating more so to one side, um, or they are seeing this big side flexion of the trunk, we've got to ask ourselves, what's that creating balance for? Um, so again, typically, if it's... So if we're going to talk about that side flexion of the trunk. If when I'm landing on... I don't know if I'm mirrored on this screen, but if I'm landing on left side and I'm in left side stance and I'm leaning to the same side then I'm trying to bring my center of mass over the top of that same hip which potentially might show me that from a frontal plane perspective I'm not doing a great job of stabilizing that hip so we might not be seeing a typical Trendelenburg sign we might not see a big um, you know knee valgus position it might be more of a subtle tell it might be more that actually we're going to shift our center of mass to, to try and compensate for the fact that we don't stabilize that hip well when we're in a single leg stance. Is that going to be something related to the piriformis syndrome the person's dealing with? Maybe, maybe not. You need to look closer, but it's just a tell. It's just a little hint that we can look at. Do I ask them not to lean over to the side? Of course I don't. I want to start to go deeper and start to strengthen what needs strengthening, rehab what needs rehabbing, and consistently, um, we start to see little changes, little changes, little improvements come along off the back of just starting to you know, improve the, improve the, um, yeah, improve the underlying capabilities, if you like, the underlying factors, the underlying traits there. Um, the arm, from an arm action point of view, the biggest realization I had in years were about upper body was that it's the action of the arms in dampening rotation. Um, so the arms are there. There's lots of rotation going on with the arms, well, it's dampening excessive rotation elsewhere. Um, so what's that telling you? So again, no solid answers from my point of view in this perspective, because it's person by person, but you've got to use what you're seeing from an upper body perspective. If it's to your eye, if it's saying that doesn't look quite right, then probably look proximally and, and look again. Yeah. Great. Thanks, James. I think we've just gone over an hour and I have to leave shortly to do the parenting thing and get the girls to school. But before we finish up, what I'll do, I'll just share my screen we, um, um, uh, of James's website. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, I'm sure you can find it, kinetic-revolution.com, with an extraordinary amount of resources, coaching videos, um, the 30-day challenge, workshops and courses, lots of uh, really, really good blog posts. Now, I do... There is a couple of your blog posts, James, that I actually refer people to quite regularly. Um, one mainly being the one on calf pain. I don't know whether you've, yeah, um, mm. uh, you know, like even myself, I, I did actually try to transition a bit to some minimalist running, and I, I certainly suffered extraordinary amounts. So I, I do refer to that a lot. There's a lot of other good resources there. So I, thank I you, mate. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, yeah. Before we go. Craig, let's just for everyone listening, let's just try and really quickly summarise everything, if that's okay. Just like a like oh, yeah. a, like the abstract of an article, because some maybe someone's some people are only just coming in. Bottom line, we we don't play around with running technique of people who are uninjured. In the context of certain pathology, there may be things we want to look at, such as uh, stride length and cadence for patellofemoral pain, step width for medial tibial stress syndrome or ITB. Um, it's not necessarily about the foot, uh, how the foot strikes. It's probably more about where it strikes. Um, we uh, One thing we haven't touched on is, is, and I know that James has been sort of referring to it, is his phrase that I like, which is this minimal effective change. So we 
we don't make big changes. We try and make the smallest change we can to have a, a positive effect. And if ultimately, as a podiatrist, if we're seeing runners, it's it's absolutely, in my opinion, um, important that we have a a relationship with a running coach. And the red flags, going back to Dave's question, are to be concerned about is if a runner, a running coach seems to have a, a sort of all-encompassing approach they shoot for 180 cadence in everyone they are telling people that they need to foot strike in a different way does that pretty much sum up the last hour anything i've missed i think so mate i think that's um that's pretty much it's in a nutshell i mean there are various other little bits and pieces that you know for example you referencing minimum effective change that we probably should have thrown it a little bit earlier. Um, something that I'm going to leave you guys to discuss, <laughs> leave everybody to discuss in the comments, um, which is, I think, aligned with, or oh, there was a comment I saw a second ago with, um, I can't remember, I can't find it. But anyway, basically leave you with the thought of trail running. Runners don't do enough of it um, because I think it's it's something which the variability and the uh, – the, the mixed workout that trail running gives versus road running is so, so, so handy for a lot of runners. So that's something that we can perhaps discuss in the comments. Sure. Mm. Okay. Well, thanks James. So, so much. Thanks Ian. I'll thanks mate. Stop the live stream.